Well, if you would please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. It is time for us to read about the end of an era. We've come to the end of an epic era. For those of you who have been with us for the entire sermon series through 1 Samuel, we have been looking a lot at Samuel. We feel a very close connection to Samuel as we read his birth story, we studied his birth story, all that God was doing in his life at such a young age, the way God has used him to bring Israel to repentance on more than one occasion, to guide and lead Israel. We have a very close connection with Samuel. But as we saw the last two weeks, Israel has a king now. Samuel was not technically a king, but he was very much operating in that sense. He was the head honcho of Israel. He was their leader, their judge, by the way, which was a political ruling, the judge. He was their prophet, their priest. He had an overwhelming authority, and that is now being transferred. Samuel is not going to step down altogether. As we continue through 1 Samuel, Samuel is still going to be um, prominent and important as the story progresses, but certainly we have new characters taking the stage. We have a new authority to meditate on. And so Samuel, as the kingdom has gathered to renew the kingdom, to renew their covenant vows, which we saw last week, Samuel now basically says goodbye. This is his final way of leading them before he transfers authority to the king. So if you would please read with me all of 1 Samuel chapter 12. If you would follow along, beginning in verse 1, for these are the very words of God. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. He said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron And brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. And when the Lord your God was king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, 
For whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will all be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king." Well, that ends the reading of God's Word. So Samuel begins the covenant renewal, or I should maybe ends the process of covenant renewal, by testifying to the faithfulness of his personal ministry. Before he steps down, at least in part, he wants to testify to the people of Israel that they might see that he has been faithful in his dealings with them. So he asks them to testify against them. You know, it's kind of like uh, at a wedding, I, we, people don't really do this anymore, and for good measure. But remember the, the, what they used to do at weddings, the whole speak now or forever hold your peace? Which is always kind of awkward to give people an opportunity to decry the wedding in the middle. But that's kind of what he's doing. Like, before I step down, if you think I was unfaithful, if you think I was a bad leader, speak now or forever hold your peace. Tell me, what, what did I do wrong? And he gets them to see, he gets them to admit, you've been perfectly faithful to us. He never abused his authority. He never took bribes. He even refers to himself as their servant. He begins by saying, I have obeyed your voice. He presents himself as a servant of the people. A man who has served them, who has not abused his authority, has not taken anything from them. And with God as his witness, Israel responds, yes, you have been faithful to us. You have been good to us. And it almost seems like we have a bit of a, we don't know for sure, but doesn't this kind of read almost liturgical to you? Right? You almost see how in our own worship we have a leader and a responsive reading. And that's kind of the gist we get here. Samuel leads and the people respond. Samuel leads and the people respond. Now we don't know how liturgical this was. If they had like something memorized or if they wrote something out. Or if this was just conversation that's being summarized in the text. We don't know. But we have this kind of corporate leader responsive reading deal where Samuel testifies to his own ministry. And then that happens in verses 1 through 5. And then verses 6 through 12 is interesting. In verses 6 through 12, he breaks off into a sermon. And the sermon specifically is he recounts to them 
their history as a people. He reminds them where they came from, and he prefaces that by saying, I want to teach you, I want to remind you of all the ways God has been good to you. And he tells them of their story leading from their exodus in Egypt to where they are today. And there's a few interesting things about the narrative that he tells. The first and foremost is that this is actually a common practice among the prophets when they are addressing Israel to remind them of their history. As a matter of fact, not just in the prophets, but we see in the New Testament, Simon does this before he is martyred. Peter does this when he's preaching to the Jews after Pentecost. It is an important practice at least according to scripture, for the people to be reminded of their history. History teaches community. There's an old adage, and I almost hate to say it because it's so uh, cliche, but it really is true. That old adage, those who don't know their history are bound to repeat it. It is vitally important for any community to have a deep familiarity with history, especially their own whether it's a family or a church or a nation, knowing our history is vital. Learning from history is vital. You'd be amazed at how powerful people become when they control history, when they control how people understand history. So Samuel knows that whatever his agenda is here today, whatever purpose he wants to communicate here, he knows it's vitally important for Israel to remember their history, to remember where they came from. Now, I don't know all of his agenda. I don't know all the reasons he had. He expresses one of them to remind them of how faithful God has been. But I suspect there's a couple other things we learn in verses 6 through 12. We learn, first and foremost, Israel is about to be confronted of their sin. And they're about to have their sin proved to them. So clearly Israel at this point in time under Samuel has not truly grasped or come to believe that demanding a king was such a bad thing. And so before Samuel just comes out and says, you guys are sinners, it's important for him to remind them that they are continuing this unfortunate trajectory that Israel has already this roller coaster that Israel's already started. They cry out to God and God sends Moses and Aaron. Freedom, deliverance, hallelujah. And then what happens? They worship the Baals. They reject God. They worship the Ashros. And as you read verses 6 through 12, that's the roller coaster. So then they cry out after their sin. God delivers them again. And then they sin. And they reject God. And then he delivers them. And then they sin and reject God. So he's showing them that you are, the apple has not fallen very far from the tree. You are just like your father's continuing this cycle. I am calling you to break the cycle. But you, like your forefathers, continue. God delivers you and you praise them. Oh, thank you, Lord. Remember, this happened in 1 Samuel. The Philistines come against Israel. Philistines overtake Israel. God delivers them and they gather at Mizpah. Thank you, Lord. You're so great. We love you. Now, all of a sudden, the Ammonites, we need a king. And then God delivers them from the Ammonites and they still refuse to repent or confess or see. He's showing them that they are continuing this unfortunate trajectory. And and I think he's doing another important thing. He just got done testifying of his own faithfulness. And don't you think it sounds a little uh, convenient that Israel, the people he's supposed to be leading, are so disobedient? Doesn't that actually look bad on him? One of my favorite movies ever is a movie called Remember the Titans. 
It's a football movie, but it's more of like a race reconciliation movie. And there's this scene, remember the Titans, where these two schools are forced to merge and they don't like each other and uh, they don't get along. And there's a captain, the captain of the football team, his name is Gary. And Gary approaches a new player named Julius who they're not getting along, they're not enjoying practice, and uh, they get into a fight. And at one point, Julius says something and Gary looks at him, the captain of the football team, and he says, you see, man, that's the worst attitude I've ever heard. And Julius responds to him, attitude reflects leadership, captain. Attitude reflects leadership. My attitude is bad. You're the leader of this football team. You're supposed to be the one who corrects bad attitude. So whose fault is it? This is poor leadership then. This is a great comeback and then it cuts to another scene. Samuel wants to make sure that no one accuses him of that. That Samuel is saying sometimes great leaders still do not have the ability to corral people into faithfulness. And he proves this by showing them, by reminding them of all of these great leaders that Israel has already had. And yet the people under them were still unfaithful. Moses was not a perfect man. But every Christian and every Jew knows that at the end of the day, Moses was a very good man. He was a very good leader. Moses is highly revered even to this day among both Christians and Jews. And still, under Moses and under Aaron, who was also a good man and a good leader, under both of these amazing leaders, Israel found ways to be extremely rebellious. And so I think he is reminding them that here's the pattern, faithful leaders yet still an unfaithful Israel. It is not Samuel's fault that Israel is the way they are. I think Samuel wants us to know that. He wants Israel to know that. So then after setting the stage with, a Bi with Bible stories reminding them of their history. He then accuses them of sin. And to just to seal the deal, just to make sure, hopefully they get it by now, but just to seal the deal, in verses 16 through 18, he proves it with a miracle. He says, just to prove to you that God is on my side, that he affirms this message, I am going to immediately after this bring thunder and rain. And he reminds them the season they're in, wheat harvest, what he was telling them is that the rainy season has already passed. Now it's harvest season. So they were living in a time where there wasn't supposed to be any rain, right? I could go up to the Pacific Northwest in, what, March? Is that, a, is that a real rainy season, I'm assuming? Basically, any time of the year, I could go up to the Pacific Northwest and preach a message and say, I'll prove it, God bring rain. And you probably wouldn't be that convinced because God was going to bring rain either way. That's not what's happening here. This is dry season. There is no rain. Samuel says, I'm going to bring rain. And what happens? There's a thunderstorm. So the people, they hear the Old Testament stories and they identify with the rebellion. They see God's stamp of approval on the message through the miracle. And by the way, this is typically how God uses miracles throughout Scripture. Not exclusively. But most often the purpose of miracle workers, miraculous workings, is to authenticate the men of God. It is to authenticate their ministry. By the, this was even the case for Jesus. One of the primary purposes of Jesus' miracles, again, not the exclusive purpose, but one of the primary purposes of his miracles was to affirm, I am who I say I am. Remember the, the man who was unable to walk and Jesus tells him, your sins are forgiven? And the Pharisees mock him for that and he says, I get it, it's easy to say that. Like, you don't know if it actually happened. How do you know that God accepted that? So Jesus says, what's easier, to tell him his sins are forgiven or to tell him to get up and walk? And then the man gets up and walks. So what's the point of that miracle? It's not just to show, oh, look, Jesus is powerful. It's to 
take us back and say, okay, I believe him. He, he can forgive sins. And so God affirms Samuel's message. He affirms Samuel's authority with, their, with the miracle. And now the people are convinced of their sin. And they cry out for forgiveness. They cry out, our sin is great. We have added to our sins this evil of asking for a king. And so they ask Samuel to intercede for them. And then in this intercession, in this crying out, in this covenant commitment, this is where Samuel makes my job very, very easy today. We are going to focus the rest of our time on the end of this chapter, verses 19 through 25. And we are going to see how Samuel, every now and then the scriptures do this, they make my job so easy. Let's read verses 19 through 25 again. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great name's sake, because it, is pleased, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Now, why do I say that here Samuel has made my job so easy? Why? Because he's preached my sermon for me. That's the sermon. Let's go home. No. But in all seriousness, this is exactly what we need to hear today. I don't know if you recall, but if you, if you were here last week, if you remember, the, the text tells us the context of 12. Chapter 11 tells us the context of 12. The people have gathered together after God has given them an undeserved victory, and they have gathered together to renew the kingdom. And we talked about how this is like a, a, a wedding couple, a married couple renewing their vows. They, they got together to renew their covenant, not to make a new covenant, but to admit, we have not been faithful to ours. We need to restart. And so this is in the context of the covenant community of God renewing the kingdom, renewing their covenant vows. And I said last week also that I want us to think of every single Sunday that we gather here as typologically being like this where we are renewing our covenant vows. We too are a covenant people. It's a different covenant. But we as believers are God's covenant people. And we gather every single Sunday, we gather together to renew the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying that every single week we have the kind of downfall that Israel had. I'm not saying every single week is like this catastrophic, we are just the most disobedient, rebellious, idolatrous church we need to gather. I'm not saying that. But typologically speaking, we fall short of the glory of God every week. The standard of the new covenant, the standard of the New Testament is the same standard of the old. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. We are to be like Jesus every week and we fall short of that. And so we come together every single Sunday to encourage one another and to renew the kingdom. So what sermon needs to be preached to a people who are trying to renew the kingdom? What sermon needs to be preached to a people who are trying to renew their covenant? Well, Samuel preached it for us. 
It's 19 through 25. There's your sermon. But here's the work that I'm going to put in on our end. Because there's one potential wrench in the system, kink in the system, I mean. And that is that we are in different covenants. Is it really fair to say, this is what covenant renewal looked like in the old covenant. Therefore, in the new covenant, which the book of Hebrews says is the better covenant, the greater covenant... We just have the same kind of covenant rule. How do we know these things are the same? How do we know that our obligations are the same? That our motivations are the same? And so I want us to see by looking at a variety of New Testament passages that Samuel's sermon is a beautiful sermon even for New Covenant children. That this is the sermon we needed to hear today. And he essentially in his sermon does two things. He reminds them of their covenant obligations... And then he gives them their covenant motivations. So he tells them, here's what you're supposed to be. Here's what you're supposed to do as covenant children. And then he also reminds them, and here's why you should. Here's why those obligations are worth it. When we hear a word like obligation, that in our culture that has a, a negative connotation. That's usually not a good word. I'm obligated. I have to. I have to do this. So it sounds kind of negative when we talk about there are obligations to being a covenant child. There are obligations, stipulations to the new covenant. People love to say the Bible's not a book of rules. In one sense, that's true. It's not a moralistic book. The Bible is not a book that just says, live like this and God will love you. But in many ways, that's not true at all. There's a lot of rules in here. There's a ton of rules. It's very much a book of rules. Why? Because it's a book of covenant. It's a book of covenant relationships, and within every covenant, you have promises, stipulations, expectations, warnings. And so I want us to see that even though the covenants are different, that what Samuel says here is very much for us today. Just as a brief side note, when we talk about the differences between the covenants, so much of our theology, like in America, we have all of these different theological points we disagree on. We disagree on baptism, and there's like five or six different views of baptism, and we're all fighting about baptism. And we have a lot of these different theological disputes and debates, and you'd be amazed at how many of those are actually just the fruit. And if you were to chase the root, the real issue of disagreement among theologians is their view of covenant. We call this debate in theological circles, we call this the debate between the continuity and discontinuity of the covenants. And here's what we mean by that. There's a general principle when it comes to examining the new covenant and the old together. There are two general principles that everyone agrees on, and they're very general, but everyone agrees that there's continuity and there's discontinuity. What do I mean by that? Well, there are some ways in which the old covenant and the new covenant are alike. There are some things about the Old Covenant that are true of the New. There are some things true in the Old that are true in the New. They, are, they have continuity. They, they almost continue to some degree. So everyone agrees that there is some continuity between the covenants. But everyone also agrees that the New is called the New for a reason. And the book of Hebrews is very clear. The first covenant is obsolete. The new covenant has come, and it's the greater covenant. So while there is continuity, there's definitely discontinuity. There is a difference between the new and the old. And so much of our theological fighting 
I, I use that word loosely. It's not always like fighting, but so much of our debates and our disagreements come to one side seeing more continuity versus one side seeing less continuity. And typically, if we had a spectrum, the Reformed tradition, which is the tradition of our church, is the side that sees the most amount of continuity. The Reformed tradition sees a great amount of continuity between the new and the old. And with, even within the Reformed world, there are some differences, and this is why we have Reformed Baptists, who are, are historically referred to as Particular Baptists. The Particular Baptists saw a little bit less continuity than the Pado-Baptists, the infant Baptists. And so that's why even within the Reformed faith, we have people who baptize infants and people who baptize don't. But it's not about baptism, it's actually about covenant. So the Reformed sees a lot of continuity, and then there's a small historical strand that sees a little less, and then you get into what's called progressive covenantalism, which sees a little bit less, and then you have new covenant theology, which sees a little bit less. And then you have dispensationalism, which sees a little bit less. And different denominations fall into these different camps. And so much of our theology is how much difference is there between the old and the new covenants. And so I, I do want, before we examine Samuel's sermon, I do want to make very, very clear that as a Bible reader, you, need, you do need to be careful of reading your Old Testament, reading something in the Old Testament and saying, okay, boom, this is the case with the new. That's not necessarily true. There, there is a distinction. This is, there is a greater covenant. Some things have been fulfilled. Some things have been changed. Some things have a spiritual application, right? We do have to be careful. But with all that said, that was just an important education bit I think we needed to hear. This is something that I think directly applies to us. This is part of the continuity. This is what it looks like to renew our covenant vows, whether you lived under Moses or under Jesus. And so let's break down what were the covenant obligations we see in the text. I think there's three, although, well, I'll clarify that in a minute. But there's three. And the first one is confession. Confession. When we have been unfaithful to our covenant commitment, the first step is to confess our sins. Look at verse 19. Samuel, after preaching the sermon, how do the covenant people respond to their unfaithfulness? And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They confess their sins. This is Samuel, our, our, our intercessor, our mediator, will you pray for us? We have done evil. The first step in covenant renewal is admitting that you need to renew the covenant. That you have sinned. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what Samuel tells them in verse 20. Yes, you have sinned, but fear not. Continue in faithfulness. You have sinned, but fear not. That's what he's telling us in 1 John 1 9. Yes, you have sinned, but fear not. For if you confess, he is faithful to forgive you. Part of covenant renewal, renewal is confessing our sins and accepting God's grace. Accept it. We live in the covenant of grace. 
We experience more grace and more mercy and more forgiveness than people thought imaginable. They, they experience the same forgiveness, but for us, it's been revealed. We understand it with so much more clarity. We have so much more to rejoice in. We have been forgiven of our sins, and when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. So the first thing we do is we confess. Individually, corporately, we need to be people. What, what does it mean to be a covenant child? You are a person who is constantly confessing your sins to God and to one another. But I also don't want us to, to miss a very important element that's also consistent. Notice that there's this expression, we as evangelicals, when we confess our sins, we just go straight to God. Now that's technically true because Jesus is God. But in a very real sense, that's actually not true. The people of the Old Testament were not free to go straight to God. They had to go through a mediator. And guess what? That's the exact same case in the new. You are not free to go straight to God the Father. You do not have that privilege. The people knew that they didn't. What do they say in verse 19 again? They've recognized their sin, so what do they do? They cry out to God, forgive us? No. They tell Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. And Samuel does not correct them. He does not say, no, this is wrong. What does Samuel say in verse 23? Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. The forgiveness of the Old Testament was mediated through a representative. And guess what? That has not gone away. What has actually happened is that we have been given the greatest representative the world has ever known. Jesus Christ. We still have a mediator. We still go to God through intercession. We still go to God through a mediator. Our mediator is just greater. And that's why in 1 John, yet again, beginning of chapter 2, he says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. First he tells you, confess your sins and God will be just and forgive you. And then he immediately reminds us, how does God do that? In and only in our advocate, Jesus Christ. We have a better covenant because we have a true sacrifice for sins. Not typological sacrifices, true sacrifice. And we have a better mediator, better than Moses, better than Samuel. We have Jesus Christ. But the process is still the same. When you have sinned, go to Christ. Father, forgive me in Jesus' name. We go through our mediator who paid for our sins and who teaches us the good and right way. So confession through our mediator, this is how we renew the covenant. We remind ourselves of that every single Sunday. We come here and we remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is our mediator, our faithful high priest who has forgiven us our sins. We also see obedience. And these are the next two that are really kind of tied into one, but we're going to separate them. So after we've confessed and accepted forgiveness, what do we do? We'll look at verses 20 and 21. Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. 
So after we have accepted the forgiveness of God, we are no longer in fear because of Christ Jesus, our advocate. What do we do? Serve the Lord. That is a form of worship, but it's absolutely a form of service. We become his servants. What it means to be a covenant child is we obey God. We hear his word, we learn the good and right way, and we obey it. In many ways, he's teaching them repentance right now. He just got done telling them, you have not been obeying God, but he has forgiven you, so now obey him. This is repentance. Covenant people are called to serve the Lord. We are called to obedient, faithful, walking in our covenant with God. But notice, he doesn't just say obedience. He doesn't just say to serve the Lord. How does he phrase it? Look at verse 20 again. Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Serve the Lord with all your heart. He repeats this again. Look at verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. He repeated this, which means it's important. It's very easy for us to think that this is him being redundant. Like, serve the Lord with all your... Of course. You could have just said, serve the Lord, right? Wrong. It is a constant theme in both testaments, in both covenants, that it is possible to serve the Lord without your heart. And God hates it. So what's the third thing we're looking at? What does covenant renewal look like? Confession, obedience, the third one, faith. We continue in faith. We continue believing in the Lord with all of our hearts. So when we are called to serve the Lord, we are not called to just go through the motions of the covenant. Just, just do what the covenant says. We are called to start with heart transformation first. You begin with the transformation of the heart and then flows from that. You walk in faithfulness. You obey God. But it is possible to serve without your heart and God hates it. Romans chapter 8 says to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God those who do not have faith can't please God it doesn't say they won't will not it says they cannot they are unable and you think that's insane because I see people without faith serve the Lord all the time they give generously to charity. They help their neighbors. I know tons of non-Christians that if they saw me broken down on the side of the road, they would stop and help me. I know tons of Christians that if my life was in danger, non-Christians would take care of my wife. Tons of them. So isn't Paul lying? People serve, they, they do what the Bible says to do all the time without faith. Does that please God? No. Hebrews says the same thing in chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So people can do the workings of the law externally, but if their heart is far removed from God, if their motivations for doing it are impure, then the work is tainted. This is Jesus' message when he was telling the Jews about how the dietary laws have been fulfilled. What goes into your mouth does not defile you. It's what comes from your heart that defiles so they do all of these 
quote-unquote good works, but those good works sprang from a defiled heart, which what does that do to the works? It defiles them. It's not actually good. And this is important for Samuel to tell the people because this becomes a theme throughout Israel. In the book of Amos, for example, God reveals to the people of Israel through Amos and he says, I hate your sacrifices. They have become a burden to me. Why would God say that about his holy word? These sacrifices, the Jews didn't make these up. God revealed these through Moses. These were holy, precious commandments from God. God said, I love this form of worship. This is how you worship me. Don't you dare deviate from that. And the people were doing it. They were obeying God. And he goes along telling them, I hate that. Why? Because they would do that on the Sabbath, but they were worshiping other gods during the week. So God said, your sacrifices don't mean anything to me if your heart's not right with me. One last example in Psalm chapter 51, when David repents of his great sin with Bathsheba. He begins the chapter, chapter 51, by telling us God does not desire sacrifices, but a pure and contrite heart. But then he ends the chapter by saying, restore to me the joy of my salvation, and then I will offer sacrifices to you. So make up your mind, David, does God want your sacrifices or not? How do we bring these together? He doesn't want my sacrifices if it's not from my heart. But once my heart is right with God, then he delights in my sacrifices. So again, what do we see? It's not enough to serve the Lord. God hates that. We serve him with faith, with love. We serve him with all our hearts. What is our covenant obedience? What does it look like to renew our covenants? We confess our sins. We accept the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And then we repent and we obey and we continue in faith. Now let's end with our motivations. Why? That's a lot of work. Might not sound like a lot of work, but if you've been a human being for longer than five seconds, you know that's a lot of work. Why? What's in it? Why? Samuel gives us three motivations. And this is where we'll turn to some important chapters here. The first one is God's total sufficiency. Look at what he says in verse 21. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. You want to know what's your first motivation for covenant faithfulness? I ask you rhetorically, where else would you go? If you don't like God, if you don't like how he set things up, where are you going to go? Where do you think you're going to find everything you're looking for? You see, the Jews were constantly throughout their history worshiping these false gods. And Samuel is trying to remind them, there's nothing there for you. Those false gods can't save you. They can't love you. They can't help you. Where are you going to go? This comes up in a beautiful chapter. Keep your marker here. Turn to John chapter 6. I have no problem admitting to you that this chapter has made me weep more than one time in my life. John chapter 6, the second half of John 6, we call the bread of life discourse. It's one of the most controversial, deep, thick chapters we have in all of the Bible for multiple reasons. And we're not going to, unfortunately, we're not going to look at all those details today. But I just, I want us to see how this ends. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 66. After Jesus says all of these really deep, hard, difficult things, the crowd that was listening, they leave. They say, this guy's crazy. 
This Jesus is insane, and they leave. Every one of them. So Jesus turns to his disciples to see if they want to leave. Notice what Jesus says, verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And what's Peter's answer? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Notice, the text doesn't tell us that Peter was jiving with everything Jesus said. For all we know, Peter was just as confused by the messages the crowd was. And now the crowd is leaving, and so the twelve are guilty by association. Now they look like the cuckoo birds because they're hanging out and they're continuing to follow the cuckoo bird. So his reputation is on the line. He's, if I stay with Jesus, I'm going to have to continue to hear these phrases like, no one can come to me unless the Father draws me, and things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. I've got to put up with this. And all my friends aren't. My family, my, they're, they're not. Peter has every worldly reason to walk away right now. He's embarrassed. He's confused. But what does he say? I know who Jesus is, so I know I have nowhere else to go. I'd rather be confused with the anointed one of God than not confused with idols. This is our motivation. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to find someone like Jesus? You're going to find him in Buddhism? So many people get mad at God and they just rebel, reject God and they, I'm just being an atheist. Talk about the most unhopeful, bleak, nihilistic worldview you can possibly imagine. You find fulfillment there? Why should you be faithful to your covenant? Because there's nothing else. It's vanity. It's idols. God is totally sufficient. Christ is totally sufficient for us. He will fulfill you more than your sports teams and your vocation and your family and your love life. All of these things continue to fail you. But not Jesus, who went to the cross on your behalf. Where would we go? God is totally sufficient for us. But turn back to 1 Samuel. We have another motivation, and it's God's faithfulness. God's sufficiency, number one. Now it's God's faithfulness. Look at verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. This is right on the heels of preaching to them about how in all of their rebellions since Moses, they rebelled, but God was faithful. They sinned, but God forgave. They were in trouble. For their own, it was their own fault that they got in trouble. God delivered them. God, time and time again, has been faithful to his covenant people, even when we didn't deserve it. He has always been faithful to his end of the bargain. And that should inspire us to be faithful on ours. Why should I work so hard to glorify and please God? Because he works so hard for me. And the text tells us he will not forsake his people for his own great name. It's for his own glory's sake. And it specifically says, it pleased him. It pleased him to make you a people of his own. If you need a motivation to follow God, when, when, when this week, when you're tempted to sin, when you're tempted to stray, when you're tempted, I want you to remember this thought. God does not regret saving me. It pleased him. 
it pleased him to make you his own. Every time we look sin straight in the face, we need to remember this. God has been faithful to me, and even when I've sinned, he's continued to be faithful, and I've never once made him regret his decision. That's all the motivation we need. The faithfulness of God. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2 when he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God has been so good and faithful and kind and good to us. That's the only motivation we need to be good to him. God's sufficiency, God's faithfulness. And then last, the last point, we're going to shift tones here. And it's not because I want to ruin your day. It's because Samuel shifted tones. Notice, we just got done talking about all these good things. And don't forget it. When we shift tones, don't forget it. Don't forget the faithfulness of God and the love of God and the sufficiency of God. Don't forget those things. They're in the text. But how does he, this is kind of a bleak way to end a sermon. Look at verse 25. But if you do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. I love that. Well, in a certain sense, I don't. I love that he threw the king in there. That's what I meant. You see, this was a people, remember, why did they ask for a king? Because they were trusting in a king to protect them. And God graciously gave them a king who protected them. But here's what God reminded them. You know what? Saul's a big, strong lad. He might be able to protect you from the Ammonites. He might be able to protect you from the Philistines. But you want to know who Saul cannot protect you from? God. Don't think about cowering and hiding behind your great king. If you walk away from the covenant, God will sweep both of you up. What's our last motivation for being faithful to the covenant? Believe it or not. Yes, it's the goodness and kindness of God. Yes, it's the sufficiency of God. But it's also the wrath of God. Because he will deal severely with you if you don't. <laughs> this is what we call a threat. And it's in the text. And you might say, well, that's old covenant. This is the new covenant. God doesn't threaten us like this in the new covenant. Keep your markers here and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. This is New Covenant, by the way. In the context of the book of Hebrews are Jewish Christians who are being persecuted and pressured to leave Christianity and go back to Judaism. The whole book of Hebrews is an argument. It's an apologetic. And it can be summarized like this. Hey, Jewish Christians, Jesus is better than Moses. Hey, Jewish Christians, the new covenant is better than the old. Calvary is better than the goats and the lambs. The, the, the whole point of Hebrews is to show the people why you shouldn't be Jewish anymore. You need to be a Christian. And notice what he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses... Let's begin in verse 19 so we can see how he argues the same way Samuel does. He begins with the good and then goes to the warning. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he begins with everything we just talked about. You have a great high priest. You have forgiveness. You have a community. All of these good things. All of these things should keep you in the Christian faith. But let's say you don't. Let's say you walk away. Well, then the tone changes. Verse 26 For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, quoting from the old covenant, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. The same threat. Stay with Christ, but if you don't, you will not receive mercy. Outside of the Christian faith, there's no sacrifices. The Old Testament sacrifices have been fulfilled. You try to go be a Jew, there's no sacrifice for you there. Now, before I conclude with our third and final motivation, let me just briefly say something about this text. You can ask my wife, I was nervous for this sermon all week long. And that's because I am breaking a cardinal rule of preaching right now. And there's a cardinal rule of preaching that says this, never open up a can in a sermon that you're not able to close in the sermon. What I mean by that is it's good to go to other texts and go to other verses, but sometimes a pastor goes to a text to make one point, but we read the text and we have more questions now than we had when we began, and I don't have time to close that. We're already at 50 minutes. I'm already 10 minutes over, and I'm not done yet. So uh, trust me, I would love to answer every question you have about this text, especially from the Reformed faith, because this is a text that nobody agrees on. Within the Reformed community, there's debate, and then the non-Reformed and the Reformed community debate. There's, there's, there's a lot in this text that I just apologize. We don't have the time to, to, to go down. But you can call me. You can come to my office. I, I love to talk about it, just not right now. But I decided to go here because this, in my mind, is the best example we have of exactly what Samuel does in verse 25 laying it out. God is good. He, he loves you. He's forgiven you. He's good. And, and that's really all the motivation you need. But if you need one more motivation, if you do walk away from Christ, if you do reject his faithfulness and abandon his covenant, things are going to go really bad for you. Fear should not be our only motivation to worship God. That's terrible. We should not serve God just out of fear. But it should be a motivation. And the Bible is consistent with this in both covenants. The fear of the Lord. Now let me just address one thing. Like I said, there's about five debates in this text. But let me just address one thing because I, I imagine for the many people in this room, you're up here thinking, okay, so I have a Reformed pastor who teaches me that I don't lose my salvation standing from the pulpit and warning me about how terrible things are going to be if I walk away from Christ. Don't these pieces not fit together? Am I doing something Reformed people aren't supposed to do? By warning you, do not forsake your faith, do not shipwreck your faith. 
There, like I said, there are many answers to that, but let me just give one. Why this is perfectly consistent. Because God predestines the means as well as the ends. So what we mean by that is election is not like, here's how we tend to think of election. We tend to think of election as God puts this invisible check mark on our back. And then at the end of time, he just lifts up shirts. Okay, he had a check mark. He's in. Okay, he had a check mark. He's in. And people say, whoa, 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 but that guy didn't even believe in you. And that guy abandoned you. And that, that guy walked away from the faith. And well, he was elect. You can't, you can't lose your salvation if you're elect. So that would be like God predestining the end, but not predestining the means. But we believe God predestines the means. So let me be very clear about at least what the Reformed faith teaches. Even if it's untrue, let's just be clear about what it teaches. You have a natural capacity to fall away from Christ. Your election does not make it so that you are unable to fall away. The Reformed faith teaches that the Holy Spirit overcomes your natural capacity and prevents that. But you are able to fall away from Christ in and of yourselves, even after regeneration. And so here's where one aspect, like I said, there are more than, this is not the only answer to Hebrews 10. But one aspect is the reason we in Reformed faith continue to warn people against apostasy is because those are what God uses in history to persevere us. It's a tool. He wants you to be afraid and he uses that fear to keep you on the right path. We have an amazing example of this working out in a carnal way in the, in the Bible. Keep your mark here. Turn to, well, actually, you don't need to keep your mark here. Turn to Acts chapter 13. This will be the last thing we do, and the summary will be very brief. But this is so, this is really fascinating. Acts chapter 13. Uh, Paul is on his way to Rome. He's on a ship, and the ship begins to sink. And uh, things are not going well on the boat. Acts chapter 13, begin in verse 21. Or you know what? I think I wrote down the wrong. That's, that's incorrect. Well, uh, for time's sake, let me, I'll just tell you the story. So, I, I forgive me for that. And Paul is on his way to Rome. He's on a ship. And Paul, the ship is sinking. And so all of the Roman soldiers are, are paralyzed. They're, they're, they're in fear. And Paul tells them, and if anyone finds it, they can shout out. And Paul tells them, do not fear. He received revelation from God. No one on this ship is going to die. That's what he tells them. No one is going to die. Fear not, nobody will die. And then as they are working through the storm, some of the sailors on the ship start getting into these like uh, eviction cars. I don't know, they, they want to get off the ship. And Paul then tells them, not long after saying, no one's going to die, don't you leave the boat or else you'll die. So, hey, nobody here is going to die. God has told me, none of you are going to die. But don't do that or else you'll die. If only one of those Romans would have been some smart aleck, sophomore philosophy student. And would have said, uh, 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 no, Paul. You already told me no one's going to die. So I can do whatever I want. I can jump off the boat. I can stay on the boat. I can do whatever I want. You already promised to me no one's going to die. But no, Paul says, no one on the ship is going to die. But if you jump off, you will die. By the way, they don't jump off. Why? Because Paul warned them and told them not to. So God's predestined plan that no one would die was accomplished through the warning, if you jump off, you'll die. 
Now again, that's not the only thing I have to say about the Hebrews passage, but it's one thing I want to say. It is not inconsistent at all for a Reformed theologian to look the covenant people in the face and say, do not turn away from Christ. If you do, you will die. And if that is inconsistent with the Reformed faith, then we should reject the Reformed faith. Because it's Bible. It is biblical to look believers, a covenant community, to look them in the face and warn them. If you walk away from this covenant, if you walk away from Christ, you have no sacrifice remaining. All you have is the fearful expectation of judgment. Don't get off the ship or you'll die. So why should we be faithful? Why should we renew the covenant? Because God is sufficient for us. Because God is faithful to us. And because God's wrath is severe. Let me conclude with this short statement. As we renew our marriage vows to God. Dearly beloved, we have gathered here today. To renew our covenant commitment. To renew our vows. Remember the faithfulness and goodness of God. Know that he is all sufficient for you, that he loves you, and that he does not regret your election. Do not turn away from Christ. Do not abandon him and face his terrible wrath on that final day. Instead, remember that he has forgiven us our sins. Accept his mercy and continue to walk in covenant faithfulness. Faithfulness. 